Hey there, welcome to the seventh episode of the third season of Science and Society. I'm Drew, a med student and functional fitness enthusiast. And I'm Liv, a retired beauty queen working on a biochemistry PhD. We're two nerds on a mission to break down the science around us so you can apply it in your life. This month, we're bringing on Decibel CEO, Lawrence Reed, to hear all about the inner ear and gene therapy development. Keep on listening to learn more about Decibel's pipeline from lab bench to clinic. Let's get after it. Lawrence joined Decibel in January 2020. He previously served as an entrepreneur in residence at Third Rock Ventures, where he focused on novel drug discovery and development opportunities. Before that, Lawrence was CEO of Warp Drive Bio, a small molecule company focused on novel oncology and antibiotic drug discovery based on natural products, until its merger with Revolution Medicines in 2018. Prior to that, he was the Senior Vice President and Chief Business Officer of Alnylam Pharmaceuticals, where he was responsible for the company's business development, finance, and legal functions. Before coming to Alnylam, Lawrence was the Chief Business Officer at Ensemble Discovery, where he led the company's strategic planning and corporate development efforts. Lawrence previously spent 10 years at Millennium Pharmaceuticals in a range of general management and business development positions. In addition to his professional interests, Lawrence is a board member of Possible Zone, a board member of Garuda Therapeutics, and board advisor to Life Science Cares. He earned his PhD from King's College London and his BA from Cambridge University. Lawrence, we're so happy to have you on the show. Yeah, hey, good afternoon. It's uh, great to meet you both, and thanks very much for having me. Excited to, excited to meet you and excited to be here. Wonderful. So let's kick things off by learning a little bit more about you. Uh, can you tell us about your educational journey in science and how it ultimately brought you to Decibel? Uh, sure, that's that's quite a span of time, but I'm you know, very happy to try and to, to try and uh, elucidate that for you. Before I start, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of topics this afternoon, and I am obligated to know that I'm CEO of a public company, Decibel Therapeutics, and um, if I make forward-looking statements, I have to acknowledge that those are laced with risk and that we're trying to turn cutting-edge science into innovative new therapies, and um, we're excited about that, but there are uh, plenty of ups and downs and risks ahead of us. So I just want to just want to note that for the record. Um, so yeah, so let me let me give you sort of a thumbnail of of where I came from and how it influences you know who I am today from a from a company perspective. So I I have an undergraduate degree in natural sciences from Cambridge many years ago and got um, went to college at a time when molecular biology and biotechnology was still in its relatively formative years in the, in the early 80s, certainly in the UK where I grew up, there was very little biotechnology at that stage. And, um, you know, my true biology friends in college, they referred to some of us as closet chemists, sort of came up to university thinking one would do chemistry or physics or something like that, and, and really was became entranced with, with the beauties of, of molecular biology and um, cellular mechanisms of replication and transcription and, uh, and the like. So I ended up with a with a degree in genetics, which still I'm excited. Here we are, 40 years later, and I'm working at a company trying to trying to fix genetic mechanisms of, of, of hearing loss. So some things have been constant, and some of the things I've tried to do, which has been uh, uh, very exciting, rewarding along the way. Um, I went from there to graduate school. I was a graduate student uh, in London at at King's, as Drew mentioned. Um, but I was actually I worked at an institution called the Imperial Cancer Research Fund, which is now part of Cancer Research UK, and um, did a PhD in molecular biology, control of gene expression, and um, 
had a fun time in graduate school, school which took me to a postdoc at MIT, um, which is an, an incredible institution. And somewhere in there, my love for science is, is unchanged, unabated. But my career trajectory in terms of being a wet lab scientist, I decided to sort of close the book on that. You know, I always really enjoyed being in the lab, but I do not have green fingers. And the experiments were, they were very much a sort of means to an end, which at some level, I suppose, is true of, of, of a lot of science. But other people, such as my wife, really loved being in the lab. And she did these beautiful experiments. And my experiments always looked cruddy and, and, and didn't inherently give me pleasure, but the science was, was entrancing to me. And even now, many years later, as uh, you know, as the CEO of a company, still love hearing about the science and the scientific advances and have worked in a series of companies that I'm very happy to tell you about. But I think what links them together are, are efforts and belief in turning innovative and cutting edge science into into ways to try and develop new therapeutics. And I think like many people in the industry, you sort of partly learn an affection for trying to use science to change people's lives almost as you go, as I think as one matures or, or, or grows up in the industry. But everywhere I've been, I've worked in chemistry companies and genomics companies, and genetics companies now, but they've all had an essence of, of, of high innovation and then an overt attempt, okay, how do, we, how do we take this forward and where are the best opportunities to apply, to apply this science to try and come up with an innovative therapeutic that can, that can really change somebody's life. And I, so I can tell you more detail about some of those, but that's kind, of, that's kind of the theme. And so I've become a business person over the years and at some level that's translated into, okay, who do we partner with? How do we finance this from business development or, or from you know, equity financing mechanisms? But it all is in the name of of, of turning great science into you know, in, into novel novel medicines that change people's lives. That's honestly a really cool like transition you had from wet lab to more like the business aspect of it and being able to translate scientific discovery to business like to the business world and how that can go from one facet to the other. And I actually want to diverge for just a minute here and and ask you what what drew you to be to want to be involved in the business aspect of science and what i guess keeps you in it today like what's your favorite part about it uh yeah no, those, those those are great questions so um so you know to be frank when i when i transitioned into biotechnology i had a, only a very loose idea of what business development really meant, never mind any aspiration that one day I might be lucky enough to become a CEO. And to me, it was okay. You know, I still very much, you know, at that time, we're sort of talking 1993 approximately, very, you know, very still much in love with, with, with molecular science and what it could do um, in the biotechnology setting. And so it was like, okay, well, I, I was like, you know, working in a, in a wet laboratory didn't feel like it was it was the right path for me and the kind of focus or social environment of where I do well and you know get most reward at a personal level required a different kind of career path and so I went hunting in biotech for roles where I could use my science and um, get involved in things like more relationship building uh, thinking about how we tell the story of the science we're doing how we build relationships with um, with third parties and you know, been involved in lots of different collaborations between 
biotech companies and academic institutions, biotech companies and other biotech companies, biotech companies and pharma, biotech and investors. But at the same time, there's a sort of constancy of how do you convey the excitement of what we feel a decibel every day to a third party who might get involved in partnering with the company, say whether it's a professor down the street or whether it's a new investor or whether it's a, a major pharmaceutical company. And so um, I was incredibly lucky. In 1993, I met um, Mark Levin, who was the founding CEO of Millennium. And he basically, um, for logic that I'm not sure stands up to the test of time, but he, he gave me a shot at, at getting involved in external collaborations. Millennium was a company that had a lot of academic interactions and they sort of they put me on the road as a, almost like a scout to go and define who in the academic community we could really collaborate with to try and bring modern genomics as it was then maybe we'll come back to modern genomics as it is today into um, the academic center to try and understand the basically the molecular basis of of complex sorry the genetic basis of complex disease so i went out almost literally around the world looking for collaborations and great people to work with and brought those ideas back to my scientific colleagues. And out of that, I sort of bootstrapped my way into the fine field of what we call business development, which at some level is the set of relationships that a company builds with the outside world that enable one to keep growing one's own business. And in biotech, those range from whether it's academic collaborators, pieces of individual technology, or, or on the other side of the equation, big pharmaceutical companies with whom one can partner to develop products and, and finance the company. And so I sort of bootstrapped my way from the academic part of that, of that swath of, of opportunities into some of the basics of licensing and, and, and deals and how one puts deals together and um, got an incredible education, including um, with somebody who's been a real mentor to me, a gentleman called Steve Holtzman, who's really one of the gurus of biotechnology business development. And um, I was really lucky to work with him and Mark on a lot of that sort of transition from me and going from a naive scientist who really didn't have a very profound understanding of how one builds a biotechnology company to being you know, a business development professional involved in all kinds of transactions with, with, with other companies to help, you know, to help build Millennium and then, and then other companies beyond that, Ensemble, Al Nylon, et cetera. Does that hopefully that answer your question? So that was, that was the first piece of it. And then today, so Decibel is, is I mean, Decibel is a, a, a company trying to develop, develop novel therapeutics for the treatment of um, hearing loss and balance disorders. And our initial product efforts um, are focused around particularly people with, with fairly severe forms of genetic forms of hearing loss. And so, A, there's that genetic theme that started when I was an undergraduate many years ago. Um, but when I came to Decibel, when I was introduced to Decibel, I didn't know very much. I didn't know anything about the inner ear. And I've been a student of that wonderful and very sophisticated and complex organ. Um, but it was sort of a new field. You know, I spent a lot of my career in oncology and in other forms of rare diseases. And at the time, really hadn't had been, I suppose, fortunate that didn't have friends or family who were particularly afflicted with hearing loss. So it wasn't an area that I was personally exposed to. But when I got introduced to Decibel, I was, I was really blown away with the quality of science that, that I believe my colleagues do. And also what I believe are the really significant opportunities to change the lives of people who are afflicted with hearing loss. And we can talk about some examples. It's sort of, I find it really interesting to talk about either children who are born with very profound hearing loss or, or what happens to older people when they lose their hearing later in life. And I think, so I, I 
became educated in some of those opportunities and why why it's so important if we can intervene productively for people, including at either ends of their lives, if they're if they're hearing uh, impaired. And um, it was a whole new field for me. At this stage of my career, it was pretty exciting to get involved in something completely new. And and now, you know, my science colleagues are rolling their eyes at this point. But I, you know, my my little cubicle is right in the middle of uh, of the science team, and I listen to them jabbering about data. And sometimes I get to look at their data and just really get a lot of pleasure out of um, trying to build an organization that that takes advantage of that science and the incredible thinking and scientific uh, caliber of the work we do and try to, you know, build that company, finance the company and try and, you know, push it forward to turn that science into, into therapeutic candidates. So that's what I get excited about day by day today. And again, hopefully that joins up to where I kind of came from. I love that you discussed how important it is to be able to communicate the science that your team performs to all these different, you know, other yeah. groups and kind of other players in this in this system because ultimately, you know, a lot of the time the people that are actually driving these companies forward kind of externally aren't people with a scientific background. That's a really big challenge and it takes it takes a lot of skill to first, you know, learn the science enough that you understand it as, you know, as a scientist, as a molecular biologist. But then you have to understand it at such a level that you can kind of pull back on your knowledge and really sell it to people that don't know it as well as you do and can't be as excited about it because they aren't so, you know, wowed by this like nitty gritty science the way, you know, people that naturally love science are. So you talked a little bit about why you were excited about Decibel specifically, but it's interesting that Decibel is looking at people suffering from both people with hearing loss or balance disorders. So physiologically, could you explain to our audience why those are related and why is it that you're looking at both of those as a company? Yeah, but it's, the, the, it's a great question. And um, maybe can I just uh, take you up on the, on the first half of, the, of that little riff as well, because I think it's, it, it is really important. I mean, it's, it's no coincidence, many of them, the so-called business people who, who lead biotechnology companies, they have a science background. And I'm sure many of them are sort of nodding their heads at what I'm saying. People who are still inspired by science, even if they chose to take themselves out of a wet laboratory you know, much earlier in their career. And I think it, it is really critical that one has an understanding of the science. And even the people who I've worked with who've been great at what I did, I just threw out a couple of names, Mark Levin and Steve Holtzman, neither trained, trained as biologists or biochemists, but both had a real passion for the science and, and could debate the science with, you know, with, with the best of people around in terms of, in terms of why does this matter? And so the skill, which I think you, you, you clearly understand is how do you take the essence of your science and convey it in a way at whatever depth, you know, your audience needs, but in a way that people can really understand, you know, why, most importantly, why, why does this matter? Cause it's like, you can do diligence and you can, you can convince yourself that my colleagues do great science, right? And, and I'm not going to convince you of that. You're going to go to kick the tires on that yourself. But a lot of my role is like, let me tell you why, why it really matters that we have novel therapeutics for hearing loss in years to come. And what will be so valuable when we, when we um, in years to come, when we solve some of the problems and start to achieve some sort of pharmacological and commercial success, how's that going to transform the lives of, of the individuals with hearing loss, their families, their healthcare providers, and why is that going to be so valuable to their to their cognitive health and to their trajectory as a, as a human being? And ultimately, why would somebody 
a payer, why would somebody say, yeah, that's really valuable. I'm willing to reward the innovation that's gone into that therapy. So lots of different audiences, but a lot of it is, is what, what is the why? Why is this important? And why will it change the life of this patient or, or, or someone with a, with a hearing condition in a way that will make their life better, quote unquote. In other words, I mean, for hearing, it's really about how do you become, how do you try and enable somebody to get the full joy of participation in full set of human relationships, the communication that goes with that, the education that follows from that. And um, so, so how do you convey that, 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 that the science that drives that, the importance of, of the success when we get there and why it will be valuable to the individual and to the society in which they, which they participate. And so a lot of it is about, is about storytelling and how do you, you know, turn incredibly complex science, and I'm going to ask you a question, incredibly complex science into the essence of, of its importance. Um, so a little bit on the inner ear, and um, I'm still learning about the, the wonders of the inner ear. Um, but the inner ear is a sort of, there are multi-sub organs, and the two that are most relevant to your question, one is the cochlea, which is the primary organ of hearing, and the other one is called the vestibule. And the vestibule functions in conjunction with your visual system to give us a sense of, of, of what we what we uh, perceive as balance. And um, in both cases, the vestibule and the cochlea, they're effectively taking a mechanical signal from the outside world. So you think about balance, you know, you, you know, your head moves or you do a somersault in a gym class and your head is moving. There are, there are fluids and signals that are getting generated um, in inside your ear that then transduce the signal to the brain. As I say, the balance, it's about that signal that comes from the vestibule integrated with your visual system that's literally sort of measuring you know, where you are relative to the, you know, the gym beam that you just jumped off. Um, for the cochlea, it's more of a single system, but it's a sound wave that's transduced through the, through the uh, mechanical structures in your ear and ultimately moves fluids deep inside your inner ear across a bank of cells and that then creates effectively an electrical signal that's transmitted into your brain. So in both cases, what starts as a mechanical signal becomes ultimately becomes a, you know the concept of sound in your brain, or becomes the concept of balance in, in, in your in your brain. The vestibule and the cochlea are, are related evolutionarily. We believe that the vestibule preceded the cochlea, but they both share this basic mechanism of these wonderful cells that are called hair cells. They have no relationship to the cells that live on the top of your head, but they have these little hair-like structures that literally detect the movement of a fluid, and that's the mechanical signal that I'm talking about. And by biochemical machinations downstream of that detection event, they create an electric signal that, that, that goes into your brain. So we work on balance and um, hearing because of that sort of fundamental biological connection. Now, these are organs that have you know, evolutionary grown apart and they look very different and the cells look somewhat different, but that basic mechanical mechanotransduction property is clearly very similar. And um, when we work on genetic forms of hearing loss, we're trying to effectively correct a signaling fault inside, you know, the cells of the cochlea. Interestingly, there aren't any well understood genetic forms of balance disorder. But what balance disorders and hearing loss share in common is that 
particularly later in life, um, th these hair cells that I'm talking about, we lose them almost linearly over the course of your life. They just they just generate over the course of, of one's life. And you don't start with very many. You only have a few thousand of these cells, which is kind of amazing compared to many other really important organs in, in, in your body. And so we all sort of hit a threshold at some point in one's life where you lose the acuity of hearing or balance that you, that you had you know, earlier in your life. And it happens different, you know, we all sort of go downhill like other aspects of life, go downhill at different rates, but we're all going to hit some kind of threshold. And for some of us, it happens in our 50s and 60s. And some people, you know, die at 99 and, and still have wonderful hearing. There's, there's a quite a range of, of what happens. But so in both cases, what we're trying to do is can we either repair or, or prevent the destruction of these cells from natural processes, or the holy grail would be to be able to restore them by regenerating the, the, the hair cells. And we know enough today to know that there are common mechanisms shared between hair cells in the vestibule and hair cells in the cochlea that we believe ultimately, um, scientifically, we might be able to manipulate those mechanisms to potentially regenerate those hair cells in situ and that that would give us the opportunity for a regenerative medicine, which we think would be a gene therapy as well, uh, but a regenerative medicine to restore those cells whether in the vestibule or the cochlea. I think that's a under understood, if that makes any sense, organ, the, the ear. So I, I really yeah. liked your description of it um, because those, those two processes are like spatially, they're very close to each other in the ear. But if you don't like think about it or haven't seen a diagram, it just, you just don't, it, you don't get it until you like yeah, hear it. They're, they're immediately adjacent yeah no, right. the, the ear um you know it's as, as i as i think i mentioned to you you know there are no approved therapies no approved pharmaceuticals for any form of hearing loss or balance disorder and really the state of care in particularly people with hearing loss uh, is is either hearing aids right i mean many people particularly later in life um wear some form of hearing aid or or get prescribed a hearing aid and you know who knows how many how many of our mothers actually wear the things um, the, the compliance is, is, is not good. And then, or a, a, a more sophisticated device known as a cochlear implant, which is actually surgically embedded, you know, into the inner ear. And um, so it's, so it's a, a device-driven field, no therapies. And our understanding until the last few years of molecular mechanisms in the ear that can be addressed to even think about novel therapeutics has been really limited. And so, so as I say, it's a field where there's no therapeutics. The uh, it's a device-only uh, uh, type of intervention, and it's really it's the excitement of changing that. I think is driving, you know, the genesis of companies like Decibel and and, and a few other companies. But it's it's very much sort of the early innings of uh, of drug discovery and development for the inner ear. Right. So that leads me to my next question: with all of this ability and space for discovery and expansion of the therapeutics. You mentioned gene therapeutic, gene therapies, gene therapeutics. Fundamentally, what are they, and how do you envision them being able to treat some of these hereditary or acquired disorders of hearing loss and um, balance loss? Yeah, sure. So let me start with the sort of the general question, and then we can talk about it specifically in the ear. So, um, you know, it, it, in little bit of genetics to start with right and then we'll jump to gene therapy you know we all we we all we all inherit you know two two copies of of 
uh, tens of thousands of genes, you know, one copy from mom and one copy from dad. And um, that if you, in, in many cases, if you inherit two bad copies, what, you know, a bad copy from mom and a bad copy from dad, that they come together and you lack some kind of genetic functionality that sometimes can be harmless, but in other cases can manifest itself in, you know, many different forms of, of human conditions and disease. And gene therapy in its simple terms is, can we deliver into a, a child or, or an adult a, a functioning copy of a gene that we've literally synthesized in a test tube? Can we deliver that into your body to the right cells and cause that gene to be active in a way that we call it complementation so that it complements or makes up for the, the, the genetic deficit that you've, you've, you've had the misfortune to inherit from your parents. And so the field, it's not a new field. Um, it's, you know, depending on how you can, it's, you know, probably been, people have been thinking about this for 30 or 40 years. And it's, it's been a field that's, um, what I said sounds, sounds kind of simple. Um, it's been really hard and there have been some real, you know, missteps along the way. And it's still, a, you know, a challenging field. Um, and I'll talk about why we're so excited about it in the year in a moment. But, but that's the simple idea. So we either use viruses or other kinds of particles to deliver pieces of DNA. and We try and deliver them to the right tissue to, to complement this gene that, that, that you inherited from your, or this defective gene that you inherited from your parents. So, and um, so that idea, as I said, has been kicking around for a few decades now. Today, the state of the art is we're, we're very good at delivering, we're pretty good at delivering genes to a selective subset of, of tissues, you know, within the human body. We're, we've done quite well in the eye. Um, we know how to get genes to, to the liver and certain kinds of muscle beds. You have to deliver those genes in, in very significant quantities at a molecular level in order, in order to achieve an effect. And turns out that's really hard, that your body has, has issues and reactions to receiving huge doses of particles that it perceives as, as viral invaders that are, even though they're trying to ca you know, carry a good gene to where it needs to go uh, or where you'd like it to go. And so there's been pretty significant challenges with turning this very simple idea into you know, into a set of therapeutics and there are still very few approved human gene therapies. Um, although hopefully that will change in, you know, in, in, in the years to come. We're really excited about gene therapy for the inner ear. Um, the inner ear is, in, a, in, in addition to all the other wonders that I described or tried to describe, it, it's a tiny enclosed organ. We know how to access it. There are surgical routes by which you can get to the inner ear and you're delivering a, a, a drug into this tiny volume, you know, 100, 100 microliters or so, give or take, which is a, a tenth of a milliliter. Um, so a tiny volume, a tiny amount of drug, and we think we know how to deliver it directly to the place where, where we want it to function. And so the combination of, and then the last piece is the inner ear, it's, it's this tiny enclosed compartment. So we think we can deliver drug and very little of it is going to get out into the rest of your circulation or into the rest of your body. So you've got an ability for, we talk about that as a local delivery of a tiny amount of drug that we can pretty much deliver very precisely to where we want it to act. We think it's not going to escape and go off and do things that we don't want it to do, generally speaking, elsewhere in the body. 
So that combination of characteristics is, is very exciting. The last piece is that we, the cells that we're trying to hit, they, they don't divide. Many cells in your body, in your blood system, even in your liver, turn over. And so you have the question of, okay, if they turn over, will they keep my, my gene? Will the gene keep expressing? The cells we're targeting are non-dividing. So we believe that gives us, um, we don't know what the probability of success is, but it, we think it gives us the better probability of success, shall we say, in terms of targeting cells that do not change very, you know, that are not dividing and potentially diluting out the effect that you're trying to achieve. So we think the, the ear is clearly going to be one of the vanguards of gene therapy now, the new vanguards of gene therapy. And I think, I think it's a really exciting match of a technology aligned to just the characteristics of the organ and huge opportunities to change change the lives of literally hundreds of millions of people you know over time i think it's really interesting that you talk about delivery and then also you know that sort of longevity of treatment i feel like as we've discussed with with other uh you know, individuals that are in biotech or even just from my own sort of interaction with people who are interested in this field it's a really common issue. Delivery is a huge problem with these newer therapies and, and figuring out how you're actually going to get your drug into a system um, is is really complex. And, 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 you know, we I think we take it for granted that we take Advil as a pill and it works and we take all these kind of over-the-counter gummy vitamins and things like that. It's so easy. You know, we, we just ingest it and it does whatever we want it to do. But a lot of these complex kind of biologic-based therapies aren't so easy. You know, you can't just eat a protein and have it do something functional in your body. You can't just eat some DNA and have it, you know, cure your hearing loss. But it's fantastic that it, like what you mentioned before, uh, at the end of your answer is that the system almost matches the solution so beautifully. And it leads to like this very exciting space. And I'm excited to see where that goes for, for Decibel. And as I looked at the, the website and sort of your, your pipeline and your methodology, I saw single cell genomics and that caught my attention. I do a lot of genomics work in the lab, but I use very traditional genomics methods. So that means I'm growing up lots of cells on big plates. I'm collecting a lot of sample and I'm kind of, you know, looking at these cells as like a very large system. So, you know, hundreds of thousands of cells, if not millions of cells per experiment. So how are you using you being Decibel? How is Decibel using single cell genomics methods and what is the advantage over traditional methods? In this case, yeah. So, so I think single cell genomics is is so back up, right? So, so genomics um, encompasses different types of analysis of different kinds of nucleic or nucleic acids at different stages of, of going from DNA to RNA to protein. And um, single cell genomics, you can look at the state of the DNA. In other words, you know, the ways to measure, is it active? The genes look like they're being activated and, and functioning. And then measuring RNA that's produced from those genes and even how that RNA is, is processed by the cell to reach its final functional form. And single cell genomics is the ability essentially to look at those events literally at the level of the single cell. And so when's that important? It's important when cells are changing. So, um, you know, I used to make RNA from cells back when I was in graduate school, right? And you'd sort of, you know, you'd grow, grow a few million cells in a dish. They were all approximately the same and you'd scrape them off and you'd, you'd make an RNA prep from them and you'd, you'd analyze that. And you were basically looking at sort of average 
you know, measurements of what's going on in, in the whole population. And you were presuming that they pretty much were all, the cells were, were highly similar, which they were, and they were behaving in a similar kind of fashion. If you get into a more complex biological system, so, uh, so for example, in, in, the, in the cochlea, we think a lot about two different types of hair cells, um, inner hair cells that basically signal to the, to the brain and outer hair cells, which function as, a, as an amplifier in simple terms. And so we're really interested in what determines the molecular difference between those cells. And as the body is, is growing and developing these different organs and these different cells, what changes? So you have a pre, some kind of precursor that is that is literally developing as as the human body. I mean, a lot of children are born if their hearing works, they're born able to hear. So all the development of these different cell types has gone on in, in utero, but we're able in animals to trace where does an inner hair cell and an outer hair cell where do they originate? What was the what did the precursor cell look like? And so when cells are changing differentiating, being able to track individual cells effectively along a trajectory of how did I go from a cell that is neither an inner hair cell or an outer hair cell to a cell that is now an inner hair cell and is equipped to take a signal and, and, and interface with the uh, with the auditory nerve and what are required to, to make me, the cell, be able to do that, no more, no less. So, so now we're looking at as those cells are evolving, what can we measure at, at the genomic level that is uh, that is driving that molecular growth and eventually the specification of, of why am I an inner hair cell versus an outer hair cell? And so if you think about that in two or three different contexts that we've used it, one is what's the natural process by which the body defines means that cell is going to become an inner hair cell because we like to use those mechanisms potentially as part of our regenerative strategy as to how can we give people back those kind of cells when they're losing them later in life. So that's one application. But if you think about other environmental situations where um, we, we were involved in a paper that got published last year where people studied genomic changes where cells are being damaged by, by extreme noise. And so what's changing in a cell when it's damaged by an insult that we understand, that we know hair cells can be killed or damaged by severe noise, by certain kinds of chemicals, certain kinds of pharmaceuticals. So you can use those type of controlled insults and look at now what's happening in a cell population as those cells are, are being damaged or, 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 or dying. And so when cells are changing fundamentally, being able to look at the molecular changes cell by cell is, is, is incredibly is incredibly powerful. And so that's just some examples of different ways that we've used that at Decibel. And as you say, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a long way beyond, um, you know, looking at cells that are growing in a dish that where the cells are probably approximately all doing the same things. And, um, you know, obviously a lot of that goes on in animals because we gain access to samples um, that are particularly able to be biologically manipulated, but we also look at cells from autopsies from human ears and try to understand the same kinds of patterns you know, in those systems as well. Yeah, that sounds like an incredibly powerful tool at your disposal. And as with a lot of things that Olivia starts to describe to me about the work that she does in her lab, at first it goes right over my head. I don't understand any of it, but I I really appreciated the way you kind of broke that down for for me and, and for our audience because I think it made it super digestible um, and and really fascinating. That being said, there's 
so much intricacy to a lot of these technologies, I'm sure, and some of these processes for developing them. What is the biggest obstacle or what are some of the biggest obstacles that the Decibel team has had to overcome so far in its work? And what has that process taught your team? What have you garnered from that? Yeah, no, so that's that's a great question. So Decibel got started, I think, fundamentally being focused on what are the mechanisms by which in different situations people's hearing is damaged and how do I use that basic information to try and make novel therapeutics? So we worked on different ways, different therapeutic ways by which one might intervene and, and try and reverse or, or fix or prevent those processes. And so over our history, we've worked with small molecules, we've worked with proteins, particularly with our collaborators at Regeneron. And then in recent years, we've really begun to focus on, on, on gene therapy. And I think that drug development is always about, do I have a great understanding of a biological mechanism? And then do I have a tool, a, 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 some kind of chemical tool by which I can modulate or, or fix or change that mechanism? And for Decibel, I think it was about understanding where were we going to find the greatest sort of source that we could build a pipeline around, right? You, you, you try and build these companies and in an ideal world, you want, you want a stream of, of product opportunities coming out of the research that one invests in. And I would say about three or four years ago now, but particularly the last couple of years, we really felt for reasons that I articulated that gene therapy could be very powerful way to achieve a pharmacological effect in the year for the reasons I articulated. And we, we all know that there are many, perhaps up to a hundred or more different defined genetic causes of hearing loss. Now, some of them unfortunately occur in very, very small groups of people, but some of them, are, you know, they're still orphan diseases, but occur in tens or hundreds of thousands of people. And so we were interested in what are the molecular mechanisms, the genetic mechanisms, and can we modulate those by delivering, you know, a good copy of a gene in, in simple terms, i.e. gene therapy into the ear. We understood the power of the ear as a, as a receptacle for gene therapy, as I tried to articulate. And so it was really, I think, watching, working through and watching others grapple with, okay, I have an effect in a small animal looks pretty promising but there have been the early forays to go into human beings have you know been unsuccessful there haven't been lots but they they haven't been very successful and and we're a long way away from succeeding and we've got plenty of problems with plenty of challenges ahead and I, I don't want to see us otherwise having said which we know if your child is born lacking two copies functioning copies of the odoferlin gene they will be born profoundly deaf we can make an animal model that, that we think replicates the human physiology. We think the children born with that molecular challenge, that their ear appears normal. And therefore, we think that it gives us the best possibility in the short term of achieving effect, a, a molecular solution to their problem. And we know we've published, uh, shared a lot of animal data. We, we've, we have genetic models in, in, in rodents and we can deliver a gene effectively to the inner ear of those animals and instate what looks like robust, almost normal hearing signaling capability 
you know, in the ears of these animals. So we know that this gene has similar deficits in hearing in, in an animal as it does in a human being. We think that the mechanisms by which to deliver the gene should work in the human being, you know, obviously to be proven based on what we've learned in an animal. We think we know how to deliver a gene to the inner ear. We don't yet know, can we do that safely and effectively in a human being? But we know a lot about how to do it very well in an animal. And we relate the surgery that we do to access the ear to other forms of surgery that are done safely and effectively you know, on the inner ear. So the pieces are in place to, you know, to really drive towards, um, towards that. So, so what do we learn from all of that? I think it really brings you back to a fundamental of drug, of, of drug development. It's like, how well do I understand the molecular mechanism that it's really causative of, of the molecular effect that I'm, of the physiological effect that I'm seeing? Do I have a predictable way by which I can mod modulate that mechanism or fix that mechanism? And if I do that, can I measure something in a human being within a reasonable period of time and a reasonable number of human beings at some sane cost to give me a chance of developing a product that, that one day can be valuable to society? So there's a lot of different aspects come together. It's a drug development 101, obviously, but, but, it, but it's, I think it was really that the team explored different routes by which that you you know one might consider making new therapies in the year and in years to come i think all of those you know may be great great mechanisms by which to to achieve you know different forms of, of, of hearing restoration but we believe that right now the genetic forms of hearing loss give us the clearest cases of this gene causes this condition and we think we may have a chance to be proven safely in human beings all unknown so far but to to do that using the science of modern gene therapy and so that's that's what gets us all out of bed in the morning but, it, but we think it has the after six or so years of exploration we think it's the most robust way to go from the science in a reductionist fashion and a design fashion into exploring can we get this to work in human beings well, that was a slightly long-winded answer, but that's you know, there's a lot of exploration, a lot of great science has gone into that, and you know there are you know many decades of, of drug discovery left in the ear, but we think in in the short to medium term, we're excited about our strategy. We understand that we've got plenty of challenges to keep us all busy, but it's um, as I said, that's what really gets uh, my colleagues and, and I excited about trying to bring that technology forward for you know early on for children who are who are born or, or suffer early on from. Um, profound or severe forms of hearing loss, and then eventually into, into, into broader populations, you know, over time. That bridge and that pathway really from wet lab bench to in the clinic is such a long-winded, topsy-turvy road, and there's so many obstacles that, that scientists have to face in order to get there. So it's remarkable, really, that it ever works, you know, it, when we kind of take the moment to appreciate how complex that issue is. And you know, before we sat down and do this interview, and as we were preparing for it, I was personally very excited to hear about what Decibel is doing because my sister is actually almost completely deaf in one ear. She actually has a cochlear defect, so it's not a genetic, genetically based uh, hearing loss. There's actually a physical defect in her ear, so she probably would not be, um, you know, someone who would directly benefit from the work Decibel is doing in that in that sense. But, you know, in going through her different treatment options, we became very aware of the fact that her options really were 
just hearing aids because of the fact that it was a defect. We couldn't even do an implant at, at that point. So, you know, for me, it was really exciting to see that people are exploring these different avenues for hearing loss specifically, uh, because that was something that, you know, in my personal life, I noticed was not necessarily for how well science has done in other, you know, disease areas. We've really kind of ignored hearing loss because I think hearing aids are good, but they're not great. They're not perfect. And, you know, they're not great for everybody. And there's there's a lot of issues that, that arise. And it's a pretty archaic solution to what seems to be a pretty fixable problem with enough effort and drive. So I'm personally very excited about it. Um, so I want to hear, as we wrap up the episode, what excites you most about the technology that Decibel is doing? And as you kind of do a safe and healthy level of forward thinking, uh, what what excites you about about where things are headed? You know, the... the, the yeah, you, you, you should come and do my job. That was a very eloquent uh, articulation of, of why we think the opportunity is, is so profound. And, and also implicit in what you said was, was there's this paradox of it's such a massive opportunity in terms of an ability to change people's lives. And there are no therapies. It, it, it's a real mismatch relative to other, other areas of, of the pharmaceutical industry. And I think some of that goes to some of the things we've talked about in terms of how well do we understand molecular mechanisms. What I would say the first time, as I got involved with Decibel, um, one of our medical advisors, an, an ENT surgeon, articulated for my benefit what happens to a child who is born profoundly deaf. Now, of course, as, as you just said, if, if a child is born uh, fundamentally deaf today, they get a cochlear implant and we're able to use hard technology to give them a fairly crude form of hearing that is significantly better than nothing but still lives, leaves them um, challenged, you know, in the bustle of a schoolroom, a, a school classroom, et cetera. But a child who is born profoundly deaf really is experiencing what, what physicians refer to as a neurodevelopmental emergency. And those early years of life are so important in terms of language acquisition and the cognitive development that comes from that and the emotional and social development that comes from that. So the notion to me that technology that's you know being made in the lab behind this wall that you can't see um could be could go into a human being a very young human being or a few very young human beings in the next small numbers of years and and take somebody's child's life from being one where they where they have no ability to hear naturally and give them back the molecular basis of, of, of instatement of hearing in that context, despite the genes they got from mom and dad, and perhaps give them a, a, a degree of hearing that, that might, might mimic pretty close to what, what you and I were born with and really transform their, their trajectory as a, as a little human being, a young human being, and then it sort of starts with, with pieces of DNA being, being thrown around in a laboratory right here. That's, um, you know, and I've been involved in other companies as well. Al Nyland made some very profound in, in, you know, impacts on people's lives. But that trajectory of molecular science that starts with one of our scientists in the lab here and then changing somebody's life as radically as giving them back a sense that the nature designed to be a fundamental part of who we are as a human being and how you communicate with your parents and how you communicate with your baby brother, that to be able to repair that and give it back 
we'll see. We have a long way to go, and you nicely reminded me of my obligations to be conservative about predictions. But the possibility of that, I think, is is an incredibly profound ability to change to change some people's lives and and, and give them opportunities that might otherwise be lacking in their future. Well, I think I could speak for both of us in saying that we are excited to see where this goes and, and where the next small number of years takes you and Decibel. So thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your, your interest in our field. And that's a wrap. Another great episode in the books. If you want to learn more about Lawrence's work, Check out Decibel Therapeutics online at www.decibeltx.com or on Twitter at DecibelTX. You can follow us on Instagram at Science and Society to catch our new releases, upcoming topics, and our science shenanigans. If you're enjoying our show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help more people find Science and Society. We release a new show on the first Monday of every month, so episode 8 is coming your way on June 6th. Peace, love, and science. science.